Hello and welcome to Trek Companion. This is episode 249. I'm your host, Brian Williams. I'm Adam Caesar. I'm Stephen Embry. And today we're going to be discussing the second Trek feature film, Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. Here we go. Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, release date June 4th, 1982, directed by Nicholas Meyer, produced by Robert Salen, screenplay by Jack B. Sowards, story by Harv Bennett and Jack B. Sowards, music composed by James Horner. Cast includes William Shatner as James T. Kirk, Ricardo Montalban as Khan Noonien Singh, Leonard Nimoy as Spock, DeForest Kelly as Leonard McCoy, James Dewan as Montgomery Scott, George Takei as Hikaru Sulu, Walter Koenig as Pavel Chekhov, Nichelle Nichols as Uhura, B.B. Besh as Carol Marcus, Merrick Buttrick as David Marcus, Paul Winfield as Clark Terrell, and Kirstie Alley as Savick. Admiral James T. Kirk oversees a simulator session of Captain Spock's trainees. In the simulator, Lieutenant Savick commands the USS Enterprise on a rescue mission to save the crew of the damaged ship Kobayashi Maru. But it is attacked by a Klingon cruiser and critically damaged. The simulator is a no-win scenario designed to test the character of Starfleet officers. Meanwhile, the Starship Reliant is on a mission to search for a lifeless planet to test the Genesis device, a technology designed to reorganize dead matter into habitable worlds. Reliant's officer, Commander Pavel Chekhov and Captain Clark Terrell, beam down to evaluate a planet they believe to be City Alpha 6. Once there, they are captured by a genetically engineered tyrant, Khan Noonien Singh. 15 years after Kirk exiled Khan and his fellow supermen to City Alpha 5 after their failed attempt to take over the Enterprise. Commanding a starship is your first best destiny. Anything else is a waste of material. I would not presume to debate you. That is wise. In any case, were I to invoke logic, logic clearly dictates that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Star Trek 2, the legendary Star Trek movie, the one move Star Trek movie that everybody agrees is amazing. It seems like it's most people's favorite. At, at least uh, everybody agrees that it's the best. I would definitely concur that it's the best. It isn't my favorite. We're going to talk about that one in two weeks. <laughs> but I think very, very objectively, Star Trek 2, of course, is not just the best. It's such a great movie in, in itself that I just can't imagine they could ever top it. Uh, it's a Star Trek film. Let's talk about production a little bit. We we talked a bit offline that maybe we were a little bit all over the map the way we discussed the motion picture two weeks ago. So we're going to try and, s- <laughs> and separate this a little bit. So we'll talk about production a little bit. It's, ha- it's hard for me to talk about the movies kind of the same way that we talked about the episodes because especially with these movies... The, the the older Star Trek films. I mean, I I've just read so many books and and articles and commentaries and you know and just over the years seen so much analysis and study about it that I can't really separate the production from the movie in a way. So you know, bear with me as I try to <laughs> navigate talking one versus the other. But of course, Star Trek the Motion Picture went massively over budget. I think it was, I don't remember what it was budgeted for, but it ended up costing like $40 million. Some of that wasn't fair because some of that they, for accounting purposes, they rolled in all the failed starts and phase two because they kind of rolled a lot of that stuff into the budget of the motion picture. 
So that isn't exactly fair, but the movie went way, way, way over budget. It went so far over budget that Gene Roddenberry is pretty much going to be cut out of the films from now on. They're going to keep his name on there as executive consultant, I believe, and send him a check. And I think they sent him the scripts each for each movie so that he could, because he had the right to write up his thoughts on the scripts, which they, you know, promptly ignored. But Harv Bennett is a TV producer. I think he did Six Million Dollar Man and Bionic Woman, stuff like that. And Michael Eisner is running Paramount. And the one thing that saved Star Trek The Motion Picture was that it made so much freaking money. It made ludicrous amounts of money. It was so successful for Paramount that they definitely wanted to make a sequel. They just needed to make it cheaper. So they sort of used Harv Bennett and the TV division. Famously, Michael Eisner sits down with Harv Bennett and asks him if he could make a sequel to Star Trek, and Harv Bennett says, sure. And I think Michael Eisner said something like, could you make it for less than 40 effing million dollars? Except he didn't say effing. Uh, And Harv Bennett says, where I came from, we could make three movies, three pictures for that amount of money. Okay, great. So they used a lot of the television division to actually make the movie, and Star Trek II is... I'm sure it's got to be the cheapest of all the Star Trek films, right? I think it was made for, I want to say 12. I mean, it was really cheap. I mean, it was crazy cheap, something like that. But it was, it's got to be the cheapest of the movies, even though Star Trek 3 might look cheaper. <laughs> Nick Meyer, of course, is brought in at the last second. His name, he doesn't get a writing credit, but pretty much he, over a weekend or a few days, he takes three different scripts and kind of melds them all together, writes the script for The Wrath of Khan. Um, If you haven't seen Nick Meyer's first movie, the movie he did before Wrath of Khan, I highly recommend it. Time After Time, Malcolm McDowell as uh, H.G. Wells chasing David Warner's Jack the Ripper into the future. But here is... Nick Meyer's follow-up. Um, Nick Meyer, of course, is going to stay with Star Trek quite a bit. He's going to co-write Star Trek Four and then write and direct Star Trek Six. 1982, I think, is the greatest single year in the history of cinema. I'll save you the lengthy explanation why, but if you just Googled all the amazing movies that came out that year, you would just be flabbergasted that, that all these movies came out. Um, one of them, of course, was <laughs> The Wrath of Khan. I don't remember. I guess I would have been like six years old when this came out. I do not remember it coming out on screen. I do remember uh, the first time it was played on television. I remember like Saturday Night Movie or something. Because I remember the trailer, the TV spot, rather. They kept using that shot on regular one where the it's a close-up of Kirk's face and the, and the doors open and you see him, his face. ABC Night at the Movies or whatever it was will will return uh, to Star Trek: The Wrath of Khan after these messages, you know, like show that shot. <laughs> Somehow I just remember that, but I definitely saw that early. I saw that even you know before Star Trek Three came out, which I vaguely recall seeing on screen. It really was Star Trek Four was the first one I have a very clear memory of seeing it. But I'm wondering uh, if you guys remember this movie coming out. Um, I actually do remember it coming out back in back in the early 80s, or even in the 80s. I mean, you know, movies would stay in the theaters quite a bit longer. You know, you kind of had that um, 
change. You know, there'd be the really nice theater, and then it would go to the cheaper theater, and then eventually it would make its way to the dollar theater. So, um, my um, my parents, we used to always go to the dollar movies back then. So, um, I remember movies could stay, um, you know, in the in the theater for close to a year. You know, going through all the different um, types of chains. You know, obviously, early '80s wasn't. Um, you know, the, you know, home video was just getting underway, you know, HBO and stuff like that. And usually uh, you'd have to wait like a year or two before they'd start showing them on, um, on, um, network television, like ABC or something like that. But I do remember seeing in the theater, um, you know, and I was, you know, I was a young kid and I remember this movie, it's actually kind of, you know, it doesn't scare me now, but I remember my initial thoughts when I was young, just, um, just the scary moments in the movie that would freak me out, you know, the, 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 whatever the armadillo, animal the the indigenous creature you know khan is a very looming kind of guy so yeah i remember it kind of just being you know it's kind of a you know and it's kind of a dark movie um in a way in, in, a, in some ways because of that you know that i remember what, mccoy when he's going into the 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 station and he runs into the bloody hand so yeah i i do, I do remember it um when i when it first came yeah out. that regular one sequence is is kind of played like a horror movie when they first right. arrive sure uh, Steve, do you remember this film coming out? Um, I think I remember it coming out, but I just wasn't into it enough where I would have gone even at that age. I mean, I would have been, I guess, eight or something. But I don't, I don't, I'm reasonably certain I did not see it in a the theater. But I need, I need to check with my parents on this stuff, I guess, going into these podcasts, see if they recall. But um, I, th- I think the first time I saw it was on home video in some respect. Um, probably not long after that, you know, and then kind of caught up before certainly before four, you know, I probably saw that in theaters, but, uh, um, I don't, I don't know how many times I've seen it. Obviously it's, it is generally regarded so well and, and pops up, has popped up so many times in, in different ways on TV or in different channels in earlier years that I, I probably saw it a lot more back then than I've, the other ones I would have just, for whatever reason, gone through them when some new format of media came out, you know, but, um, so, uh, yeah, but I, I always, I always liked it. And I, I agree with Adam in the respect of the, the things I remember in the earliest things I remember as being a kid, I guess, were the things that were a little bit, uh, you know, scary, certainly the, uh, the, the creatures in the ears and the, <laughs> the, uh, all that kind of thing. I mean, I'm sure I saw this before I saw the space heat episode, even though it's based on that, you know, um, it's an interesting point that I was thinking about it too. If there was some magical way that you could just like, wave a wand and all of a sudden know how many times you've seen this movie <laughs> right uh obviously i'm a i'm a film lover i i work for a living in the industry because i love movies so much and i also love star trek and this is not just a great movie it's a great star trek movie uh so i've seen this movie a lot of times my guess is i have seen this movie more than any other single movie in my life I would not be surprised to learn that I've seen this movie hundreds of times. (laughs) I guess there's no way to know that, but if somebody, if it was like 300 times or for something, I would not be surprised at all at that. Um, I mean, I used to watch it just over and over and over. I watch it even now, like watching it today. I I definitely didn't need to watch it for this conversation, (laughs) but just, just to see if I could do it. I'm like, naming what the next shot is or the next scene and i knew every single one and obviously i know all the lines but there was like one line in the thing where i got a couple of words out of order (laughs) so that was it i mean i've seen this movie 
a lot. I remember one time a few years ago when I watched it, just purposely watching, and I've, it's the only time I've ever done this with any movie because I've seen this movie so many times. I just decided to not watch whoever's talking in every scene. Like I really just watched it one time, just looking in the background the whole time or something. <laughs> so I've watched this movie a lot. And it's it's kind of weird because now I'm I'm to the point where it's like, it's almost weird to watch it because I don't, it's like some great piece of music that you've just listened to so many times that you you don't really need to ever actually listen to it again because you, anytime you can cue it up in your head, you know? Sure. So it's almost weird to, it's, it, I've gotten to this point, weird point just with this movie. And this isn't even true with Star Trek three or four, which I've watched almost as much, but just with, with the wrath of Khan, I've just watched it so many times that it's, it's an odd experience to watch it. It's almost like, I mean, the last couple of years, other than today for this conversation, the only time that I've watched it has been to play it for somebody that's never seen it before, which is, you know, a good reason. But it's just, it's a weird experience. Yeah, Brian, I'm with you kind of on that. I, um, this is actually the first time I've watched it from start to finish in quite a while. Um, I know you, do, you don't have cable, you, you know, for our listeners, I'm, Brian can't stand cable, so he can go into that if he likes. But they it's actually replayed quite a bit on cable. And the times that I catch it is like when I'm flipping through the channels and I might watch 10, 20 minutes of it. And so, and that's kind of like been my con viewing for probably at least the last decade so i couldn't recall the last time i watched it from start to finish but um what you're talking about i kind of had the same feeling i'm like you know i don't didn't even really need to watch this movie i know <laughs> you know it's it's so ingrained into your head it's yeah it's yeah you can pull up any scene or any line at any moment you want in your head and it's so i i get what you're saying with that well let's talk about then what version we all watch so there is a director's version I don't really call it a director's cut. I think they call it director's edition. I don't know what they... No, maybe they do call it a director's cut. But it's not really... If you listen to Nick Meyer, it isn't exactly a director's cut. It's almost like... like It feels like they put the shots in just as an additional promo-y kind of thing or something. I personally do not like the director's cut. The few times where they add on to scenes, I find it entirely redundant. Every single one of them. Why is Khan trying to kill you or whatever i mean it's like we we just had that conversation i don't know or the extra stuff added on and genesis will do it for you in six minutes that the extra stuff in that scene i i find it redundant every single time so i don't necessarily like the director's cut the only thing that maybe isn't redundant is um oh and also they use an alternate take um i cannot and will not subscribe to your interpretation of these events they use an alternate take for that dolly shot so that they can extend it. And I don't like the, maybe I'm just so used to the other versions, but I don't like everybody's delivery on the lines that from the, yeah, I don't think they're as good as their delivery for the theatrical. Most of the time you watch the director's one and you're like, well, this is better in the theatrical. That's probably why they cut it Um, anyway. uh, And then the only thing that's actually really added really, that's not redundant is the stuff with Preston where we actually established where Scotty actually says that he's his sister's kid I hate that stuff because Preston sounds like when he's like, if the Admiral can't see how great the Enterprise is, then he's, uh, God, he sounds like a freaking 50s TV teenager or something. It's so, it dates it in a weird way. I do not, so I don't like the director's cut. There you go. However, um, usually I watch the Blu-ray just for giggles this time. The director's cut is the only one that you can watch in 4K HDR. I wish it was on 
4K disc that way, but as Paramount sucks, I wish Paramount. I'm gonna. I said I'm gonna do it every time, so I'm gonna do it real quick. Uh, Paramount, please spend the money. Do a good transfer of all the other movies. This movie, you got a good transfer. But in this one, you've got a good transfer and you haven't put it on disc. Please put it on 4K disc. Thank you. Okay. This is the only one that is available 4K HDR, but it's only available that way digitally, uh, not on disc. So anyway, just to try it out, I, I played that version. The P3 color is nice. I can notice, honestly, the increase in fidelity and I really only see it like on text and stuff like that, but you can see a little bit of improvement in the color. I'm sure it'd be much better if it was on disc. But which version did you guys watch? The the theatrical and Blu-ray. I watched the. I actually watched the director's cut because I think I'd only seen it once before, so I kind of wanted to change it up. And I I do kind of agree with you. The only thing that I kind of liked more about the director's cut was the um, you got a little bit extra with Scotty when Preston did die in the in the sick bay. So that was that's probably the only thing that I kind of. You know, I'm fine with in the director's cut, but you're right, Brian. You could cut the rest of the stuff out. I've wondered what it must have been like to be excited as this movie is coming out to find out that Khan's gonna that is returning from the show. That must have been pretty exciting in 1982, but we were all too young to uh, enjoy that side of it. But I bet that was cool. <laughs> uh, well. Let's let's see. So I started actually watching it. It was the first time watching it, seeing like the opening credits and realizing, oh, my God, most of these people are dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is yeah. that's that's happened during my life. Even like Harv Bennett, who, you know, is my hero for many years, because I really think of Harv Bennett as such an integral part of saving Star Trek. And I did get to see him before he died. He did a. I went to a Q&A that he did for, gosh, I think it was Star Trek IV. Every, like all these names, everybody, even people that shouldn't be, <laughs> I mean, shouldn't be. I just mean people that weren't, you know, died young, like Merritt Butrek and James Horner wasn't very old. But I don't know. It was it was just, it was weird seeing all one, one name after another. <laughs> I see dead people. The one thing that I did kind of notice watching it, yeah, the cut's not, good at all and um it does feel it does feel a little bit dated the movie i felt like it felt more dated this time watching it the whole way through like you know just the effects and graphics and that kind of thing i that's the one thing that i did kind of notice on this this way through it's like yeah this movie kind of it feels very early 80s um and so i i think um you know i'm with you i think like an improvement of a print or you know making it you know doing something to make it look better would help would help the movie quite a bit See, actually, you know, I've uh, I haven't seen this, you know, front to back in quite some time either. You know, um, I know Adam mentioned something similar, and I, I did think it was really I I really enjoyed it. I, you know, it's funny is because I've um, and this is Brian. Given the number of times you've seen it, you probably wouldn't have quite this perspective. Is the perspective of that that very thing of not having seen it in a long time? I mean, you mentioned uh, noticing that for the first time that it was. Um, you know, all these individuals had passed who made the movie. Um, but I think I've seen so much more, you know, got into, got into movies so much more since I've seen this last and, you know, have that kind of thing that it, it did give me some, a, a new perspective to it. Mm. I th- And I think that what I took most from it was just one of those, I, I think it's one of those things that's hard to quantify, but it's just so 
there's just it's just it doesn't it doesn't miss a beat all the elements are there there's not like some grand premise you know right that it's saying something that nothing's ever said before or anything like that but it's one of those rare examples i think of of something that's so um it's so much fun and it's so entertaining um combining that with combining that with the um you know, being Star Trek and it being so well put together, you know, like there's just not wasted, wasted space, wasted time. You know, it's, it's, it's got, there's a point to it ever, you know, and then when you, especially having two weeks ago, watched the motion picture, which has its merits, but it's just so, uh, you know, it's such two different things. It's like, uh, there's, they're so far apart from one another, um, because of the kind, the kind of movie they are, you know, and, and it just, uh, it, yeah, I, I, I get where it does feel like in a sense that it's a product of its time. It does have a look and a feel and that kind of thing, but, um, it, it's this strange kind of, uh, combination of nostalgia for that era and for Star Trek and for also just the, the sheer entertainment value of something that just kind of just keeps boom, 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 keeps going. And, and, um, I don't know. I, 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 I always liked it. I just don't know if I appreciated it as much as I did this time watching it. Plus I watched it with my wife. We'd never seen it before. So that was, that's oh, she'd good. never seen it. No. Yeah. Cool. So What's that's always, a, uh, she, she liked it. She really enjoyed it. She was, you know, she didn't hate the motion picture, but you know, it's slow and everything like we talked about. And so, um, she, I don't think her expectations weren't, weren't so high, you know, <laughs> no, 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 this, this is a good one. You know, trust me, you know, but, um, yeah, she, she really did enjoy it. It was, it was fun. Steve, yeah, you were, you were mentioning, you know, like this, this movie does, it hits on all the beats, um, you know, and, and I'll start with Kirk. Um, you know, you, I mentioned this with the motion picture. I didn't really understand why, where they were going with Kirk and why, they had that conflict between him and Decker and like what to me it never made sense in that movie why everybody didn't have any confidence in Kirk. I'm like, you know, he did a five year mission and he'd only been an admiral for two years. How inexperienced could it be? You know, you you have this great captain and then somebody who had never had command experience. So that part of that movie never made sense to me and they never did a good job explaining why Kirk was insecure. In this movie you fully understand what's going on with Kirk from the get go, right in the opening scene um, you know, when, you know, Lahoris, you know, wants to go out into space and he's like at gallivanting in space is for the young. And you can feel that in him, that there's something not there. And then you kind of, gradually you go on, you get that again. And with the scene with him and Spock in the corridor, and then it's really hit, hit on the nose, um, with him and McCoy when they're celebrating his birthday in his apartment with all these antiques. So you have that feeling that Kirk is, is missing something in his life and he's depressed and he's getting older and that kind of thing. So that sets up the movie and it sets him up through the whole movie that made much more sense to me than what they were trying to do in the motion picture. Yeah. And you've got that, that through line. It's very consistent. It's just the right amount of it, but I, I really agree that the way the movie moves, you know, it's there. It's sh- in some, there's sometimes when it maybe shouldn't work. Like I was thinking about just how long the scene is uh, when, Khan first speaks the armadillas in the ears and all that that scene is actually really long and there's a fair amount of just flat out exposition in there which is always you know a nightmare to have to do that's dangerous that scene never gets boring I think it's just it's really good writing and it's pretty great performances Ricardo's awesome if you've never read Nick Meyer's book A View from the Bridge I think it's called his memoirs he goes into length about how he directed Multibon, and it's it's really fascinating. It's a, it's actually a really good book if you're interested. 
and it's a quick read. It's, it's not very long. But yeah, that, that scene is really good, and it, and it sh- kind of shouldn't work because it's so long, but it, it totally does. The way that pulls you into the next scene, pulls you into the next scene. I think my favorite scene in the sh- movie is probably the scene in Spock's quarters, which is the only location in the movie that looks terrible. Spock's, Spock's quarters are crappy <laughs> looking. Apparently, Nimoy was really pissed about that. So when Nick Meyer went and wrote, wrote and directed Star Trek VI, when he produced that one, he made sure that Spock's quarters were really cool. <laughs> but anyway, even though it looks bad, hey, folks, keep this in mind. In two weeks, we talk about Star Trek III. <laughs> talk about, you know, it's probably the worst-looking Star Trek movie, and yet it's my favorite. Okay, so Spock's quarters in Star Trek II look terrible, but I think that's my favorite scene, because just because of the writing and their performances. That's that's the, uh, the scene where Spock is saying, like, if I'm maybe so bold, commanding a starship is your first best destiny. That scene, which ends with the idea that Kirk is going to take the ship, you know? And it's very shortly after that that we have um, we have Khan attack the Enterprise. Which is, by the way, I still love that sequence. I have to disagree that it looks dated. I don't think it looks dated at all. And yeah, I mentioned last time that I have such a soft spot for models. Maybe that's it. Maybe I just love seeing the Reliant and the Enterprise <laughs> going at it. But they really are these big lumbering submarines in space. It's sad to me that nobody would make a movie like this. Nobody would make an action scene like this ever today. No way. And that's too bad. Because I think it's wonderful. I don't know what, what somebody would think that grew up on you know modern crazy CG flying all over the place. But I think these models are just gorgeous. No, Brian, I would agree with you. I do. I wasn't talking about like the the space sequences and the models and that kind of thing. Those are all great, and the and the movies and those still hold up. What I was kind of referring to was kind of the inside of the ship, the computer screens, and um, mm. kind of stuff like that. Even even the lighting was kind of a little bit um, on the darker side. So, um, and that's just kind of the era that it was kind of shot in. And so that's what I'm kind of referring to. It's like it kind of felt a little bit dated to me. Just kind of what I was thinking about, kind of what, it would be kind of cool if they did something, um, and this might be sacrilege, it might be kind of cool if they did something similar to what they did with the original series, just updating some of the, um, some of the oh, graphics. no! Some of the graphics. Because no! I think, because no! I think, because no! I think that, that helps with younger audiences and nope. keeping the film relevant. So that's, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> I'll be the I mean, old man yelling at clouds. No. <laughs> No. I think hey, really, this movie I, has one of the first lengthy like CG sequences ever put in a movie. Uh, the footage of the Genesis device hitting sure. that little moon, which they uh, got their money's worth out of it by using it in multiple Star Trek movies. And it looked very dated. But do you know the, the company? That, they weren't called this at the time, but what the I company am, that made that turned into? IML? Looks like Pixar, doesn't it? It is Pixar, that's right. Okay, yeah. I am, IML did the um, ILM some, did some of the, the space shots and stuff. Sounds like you did a little bit too much LDS. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, Pixar was originally this little group that was part of you know, that Lucas owned. That was basically part of ILM, and when he spun them off, Steve Jobs bought them and and named them Pixar. But that group was the group Pixar before they were Pixar, is who made that sequence. You know, one thing, and kind of uh, backtracking a bit, but uh, talking about some of those things that just kind of pervade throughout the movie, and um, I, I think I think this is comparing this movie, the things we like about it, compared to maybe the motion picture in certain ways. You talk about 
Kirk as a character and how he's more likable here. Well, I think to me, to me, it's just a, it just showcases that notion that we that is often taken for granted in that uh, how much vulnerability sells. You know, it's like if it's done right, you know, if you make someone who's a um, you know, that kind of character. And, and it's, if you, if you contrast, you know, with, the, with these two movies, like in this one, Spock, his friend uh, volunteers to give up his command of the ship to him versus what we saw in that first one, you know, with Decker, who we don't even know <laughs> fighting for it. And then uh, Kirk, you know, you know, fighting old age, but admitting to these fa- this fallibility and admitting to the fact that he was caught with his pants down and all these kind of stuff. To me, that's that's that gives so much to this as to why it, it's good, you know. Because when you when you have a have a hero that you can relate to and then makes mistakes, and as I mean, you know, it, it's it makes such a difference, you know. I, I think, and I think that's a consistent. I think that's something that's a, a timeless theme, you know. That, that almost always is the case, you know. To me, seeing that in a movie always is, if it's done right, is always going to beat some kind of. Um, you know, bravado, do no wrong, you know, ultimate leader kind of thing. And, and that, that, I think that's what I enjoy so much. Yeah. It humanizes him quite a bit. Um, you know, and you look back at the original series, you know, that Kurt, Kurt never was too often that down. So, I mean, that's kind of the, the counterpoint to this movie. You see him, you know, and you know, I, I, I rewatched documentaries and Shatner was 50 and I think he had a little, he was a little nervous about doing this as well. So, um, yeah, it kind of played off on screen. Uh, I want to talk briefly about James Horner's score. Amazing. Amazing score. I think it's so great. Now, people argue that it sounds a hell of a lot like a couple of his other scores. Yeah, it does. Kroll, it sounds a lot. It's There's some themes in here that are very similar to Kroll, but I love Kroll too. There's some stuff in here that's very similar to Aliens. I love the Alien score too. I hear sometimes hear Wrath of Khan and Titanic. That's, so yeah, it's yeah. the same. Yeah, but I love it. I think it's great. And Star Trek Three, he's going to reuse many of the same themes, but it doesn't bother me. We'll we'll talk about it in a couple of weeks. But the new stuff that he does do for Three, I think, is great too. So I I love I love the score to this this movie. I I love just it's just it opens the opening titles and you hear his music and you know it, I just get excited because it's so great and it's and it's so different from the amazing score that Goldsmith gave us for motion picture. It so defines just the visual changes they made. You know, the, I love, I like the way this movie looks. It isn't as pretty as motion picture, but I enjoy it more, even though, because it's just, it just feels more lived in and real. And as I've often talked about, one of the things that I love so much about Star Trek, maybe the thing that I love so much about Star Trek is um, living in that universe, you know, Trekker versus Trekkie. And I think, this movie way more than the motion picture it accomplishes that you know nick meyer really leaned into the whole the horatio hornblower hornblower the the navy uh side of star trek and you see that in the uniforms you see that in people running around the ship and putting the photon torpedoes in the launching tubes and all that stuff some of that also gets back to what you were just talking about steve humanizing people and just making all of these making all of this this movie is so much more dramatic because you understand these people you understand where they are and what they're doing and you feel um empathy for them um lord knows i feel more and more empathy for (laughs) kirk's predicament as i get older (laughs) and i understand it more and more 
you understand the movie. There's a there's definitely a human cost. I mean, you know, we'll get to the end here shortly. I'm, I'm assuming, but I mean, yeah. I mean, you have the scene where Scotty's nephew dies. Um, there's a lot of debt. You know, there's a lot of crew people. You know, in, the whole movie is set up. These are just trainees. They're just getting started, and you feel that all the way through the movie. I'm like, oh, these are just young kids. They're just out on a training mission, and they're all on fire in the engine room, and all the damage that the Enterprise is taking. You know, there's a lot of loss of life. Um, you know. And, like you said, we'll talk more about the third movie and, you know, that kind of carries over into the third movie. Um, so yeah, there's a, definitely an emotional impact on many different levels throughout this film about how, how much defeating Khan will cost them all. The one other actor I wanted to call out was another thing that makes this movie so good, I think is that you have so many great guest stars and other actors besides our core, uh, Paul Winfield is great, but I really like Bibi Besh. I think she's so good. That scene when it's just her and Shatner, why she didn't tell David about him. I wanted him in my world, in mine, she says. She's so good in that scene. I really think Bibi Besh is great. And that's another person that died young. I think she was only maybe 50 or something when she died. And that's a great part about the story. I mean, you know, not too often in a movie do you get something new totally new about a character especially one that's that doesn't seem convoluted i mean it seems entirely yeah yeah i mean it wasn't just because she told him to stay away you know there was a part of him that didn't you know he wanted to be the captain out there (laughs) right he didn't want to settle down but there's a part of him that's forever going to regret that decision and It'd be completely plausible if every movie we find out he had a kid with a different woman during the original (laughs) series. (laughs) Totally plausible, as Brian said earlier. Is there anything else just narratively? uh, Well, I I guess it sounds like we want to discuss Spock's death. Spoiler, Spock dies. (laughs) Twice in the movie, actually. I've well, that, you know, that was an interesting thing too. Uh, there, there had it's not like today uh, where you got the internet and crazy rumors, and people would have found out very quickly. But there were rumors that Spock was going to die. There were rumors that Nimoy didn't want to do the role anymore. I don't know how conscious of it was, but showing him, quote unquote, dying uh, during that Kobayashi Maru sequence at the beginning. It it um, disarmed a lot of the audience who had heard this rumor, like, oh, it wasn't true. He's just dying here, you know. So it really, really helps sell later in the movie when Spock really does die. Now, as I said, I've seen this movie many, many times. I know it backwards and forwards, up and down every second. I still don't know that I've ever watched it and not teared up and he dies. I can't seem to i've tried i've tried to not do that it's just so good and so effective and i love these characters so much and his performance and shatner's performance and their friendship is so genuine in that moment every single time i've ever watched it i tear up well it was interesting i was watching the documentary last night and it said everybody on the crew was teared up after the scene they said only nick myers was the one going hey what's everybody crying for so uh, that's <laughs> right what, that was what's interesting that's that's how you know it's so good and it's so lasting to this day that that emotional connection between those two guys. well even nimoy had second thoughts at the last second that's why they added you know added the remember bit that wasn't in the script that that was made up on the day. Good thing. <laughs> yeah. So the Nimoy story, so he they had to talk him into doing this this movie 
because they were going to give him a death scene. And I guess what I got from Nimoy was like, he didn't think it was going to be a, he, I guess he kind of thought it was going to be another motion picture where it wasn't going to be a very good film. And he's like, okay, uh, Spock will get killed off and that'll be it. And Star Trek will be done. And that's kind of what seemed to be his attitude going into it. And once he got into the film and working with everybody and seeing how great the story was and how everything was so tight and put together, that's when he kind of started having second thoughts about leaving the franchise. And of course they would add the sequence that shows uh, Spock's tube, burial tube, soft landed on the Genesis planet. And the epilogue, right? The game, the... Yeah, but Nick Meyer had nothing to do with that. He And he, he said, no, I won't shoot it and you can't put it in the movie. And it was shot and cut in against his wishes, which is why he had nothing to do with Star Trek Three. He thought it took all the power away from killing Spock to bring him back. And there's, there's some, certainly something to that. So what's nice is when you've got somebody like Nick Meyer doing this, but then you've also got a stu- studio that can overrule him and give us the tube on the planet. So it's kind of, this movie is just a, a movie miracle. This movie to me is the kind of movie that comes along once ever, once a decade. Now we got several of them in 1982 because it was the greatest year in the history of cinema, but it's so rare for a movie to be th- this amazing. And it's, and honestly, the only way it can really happen is all these amazing people at the, at the height of their powers but also luck. By Star Trek VI, I think if it had been the same situation, the studios would have said, okay, whatever you want, Nick. <laughs> but here, they put in that extra scene, and we got Star Trek, the the, the rest of the movies, and, and Spock. So, so Brian, Brian, real quick, what are your top five from 82? Well, obviously, Star Trek II, Blade Runner, and The Thing would both be up there. Probably E.T., definitely Tron. It's a very long list, but we should have that conversation another time. <laughs> that's a that's a whole other podcast. We're mm-hmm, just going to do a 1982 podcast. Yeah, we could. We totally could. I think it's interesting in terms of you mentioned Spock. I mean, what always strikes me is that as time goes on, I get more and more convinced that like the Star Trek franchise is, is kind of about Spock. You know, I mean, and because it just I think his character is so great, and like you said, it's so fortuitous that everything fell into place to. You know, it's it, first off, it's fascinating that you fascinating that you that he, 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 he I, I agree, I tear up. And, you know, this time I think I, I was more emotional about that than I ever have been watching this movie because it's been so long. And it's like, you know, very well what's going to happen. I mean, this is so far from the end of that character that, you you know, there's more to come than there has already been almost, you know, but it still was that powerful, but it's so, it's so interesting that, that I I think, I think it's a testament to the character and, and his portrayal of the character that you just can't, you can't, you can't get enough almost. It's also, I think the, um, the nature of that character being such that it's, it's kind of all of us. It's always that war between two halves, you know, and, um, that's that's so compelling that you that just keeps coming back and coming back and coming back and then make a new series with the character again and and we saw the beginning and we saw the end of this character he's the only character that really crosses between two different universes and um yeah it, it, i don't i know that's kind of a, a you know a, a side line here to everything we're saying but that did cross my mind watching this too well when i say star trek 2 saved the franchise i don't just mean it was a good movie that people actually it made people want to actually watch Star Trek. I don't just mean because it made money. <laughs> you know, they made it cheaply and it made money. Studios love that. Let's greenlight a sequel. Made people love these characters in the way that they loved them in the original show, but didn't get out of them from the motion picture. Yeah. And definitely Nimoy 
and Spock is such a big part of that. This movie gave them a story through line, which they're really going to keep for, I mean, even in Star Trek six, I've been dead before. <laughs> I mean, there's, yeah. this is never, this saves it in such a way. And then, you know, you, so you've got two more movies immediately every two years, you know, you get Star Trek three, you get Star Trek four. And then they green light another series next gen. Well, Star Trek four comes out in 86 next gen premieres in 87. So that's all, that's their franchise. Now Star Trek two made it a franchise to me, not Star Trek motion picture. And well, it's, it's interesting how, you know, and how they did it. They went kind of back to their roots, you know, you, you, you know, of what the series was, you know, you know, we're talking about Spock and he's obviously a key cornerstone to this franchise. Um, but, you know, it's that, that, that three person bond, you know, Spock, McCoy, Kirk, and that's kind of, the, you know, that's kind of what they went back to. And then you have such an incredible villain, you know, is Khan the best villain of Star Trek? Yes. You could even make an argument. He's the best villain of all times. I, I sometimes like to think that. And Ricardo Montalban is awesome in this. And it's amazing to me. He only worked 10 days on the film and he kind of did it by himself because there, there was, you know, there, you know, there was a script girl reading um, Kirk's lines back to him on the thing. And that makes his performance even more amazing to me. So, you know, all these things that lead to, the sacrifice that Spock makes is what's yeah, is, it goes to everything what you're saying, Brian. It saved this franchise. It's, it saved everything and made everything possible um, to this point, even. All right. I think that uh, one of the many reasons this movie is great is that we're going to have nice and lengthy answers for what is it about. So, what is it about? They're trying to go into trying to talk about like age and usefulness and can you still kind of make a difference? And that's what they're trying to do with Kirk mostly throughout this film. It doesn't really show through too much in the other characters, but like I mentioned before, you have Kirk, he's melancholy. He's sitting behind a desk. He's not doing what he was meant to do. Um, And that's kind of what they're showing that, you know, that's what they're trying to show through it throughout the film that just because you're older, doesn't mean you're not as useful or as experienced. That's one kind of kind of theme that they're trying to go through the film. Um, I also kind of think there's a, a family notion to the film too, and that kind of goes back to with Kurt too. You know, him being reconnected with his, um, you know, his son, and you know, and really being reconnected with his family on the Enterprise with, with Spock and McCoy and you know everybody else. And so that's, and I think that's what they were really trying to do with this film is, and and they were successful at it because obviously we have many films and series after it that they wanted to bring that reconnection back to. Um, family and what's kind of important and it, that makes kind of sense. I don't know if I'm explaining that very well. I'll let Steve take over. Well, I, I think what's interesting is at, at first glance, it's almost like one of these where you think, how how is it possible that they juggled so many themes? Because we could say it's about this, about this, about this. You know, it's like it's like too much. Where normally we'd say there's no way you can you can do that even in a movie that was four hours long or something like that. But I think I think what's what pervades throughout this is this notion of obviously you have these kind of these themes that seem isolated at first glance, like um, aging and, um, and, you know, what is, you know, family, but then of course on the other side of things is the, you know, the obsession thing, the, the, the Moby Dick thing, you know, the obsession of all this kind of stuff to me, where it, where, how it gets, how it, how it puts it all together is because the, the, the combining link is this notion of um, the perspective that time brings um, 
but how that how that also relates to who you have with you. You know, it's this notion of um, how you choose to live your life. I mean, you have you have Khan who, um, you know, everyone, he's he's got his bunch, right? But it's on the whole, it's it's fear. You know, it's not like they, they have a family thing going, but there's you know, there's a ruthlessness, that kind of thing. And, and he's, he's, he's lost perspective on anything. It becomes, you know, he's super smart. So I mean, if he would have stopped when he was ahead, he, who knows where he could have been. Right. But he chose to, you know, hunt Kirk to the end and make irrational decisions, even given his intellect. Uh, and then you have on the other side, Kirk, like, like learns from mistakes. You have, we talked about vulnerability. You talked about, we talked about this idea of, um, you know, leaning into, leaning into it, you know, you get, you get, uh, you get older, you find out what you can, you know, what you need, who, who do you have with you, all these kinds of things. And if you, if you get that, it'll, it'll, it'll help you survive. Right. So, and find out what's important. So to me, it's like, it's this notion of, um, of perspective as, as you get older and, and how that, um, coincides with, with family and friends and so forth. So, yeah, I mean, you know, so you have these two characters, these two Titans, you have Kirk and Khan, you know, and the last time that we saw them was in Space Seed. And, um, you know, and I think what they're kind of also trying to say in this movie is, you know, our our actions have consequences. And, you know, Kirk's actions in Space Seed had consequences that affected him here. And you see that with his son. And you also see that with Khan, you know, his actions had consequences that it had nothing to do with Kirk. You know, the, the city, the planet going to waste wasn't Kirk's fault, but obviously Kirk not checking on him could have, and that was, that's where his obsession was and where this wife died. The difference between Kirk and Khan is Kirk was able to grow and learn from those things where Khan stayed obsessed. And that's why he was, you know, destroyed in the end. Um, it's kind of, you know, you have those two parallel, two opposite parallels there. I just remembered um, a brief story. I played this movie for my son for the first time. No, more than that, maybe a year and a half ago, something like that. So he would have been seven and a half, maybe when he was eight, somewhere around in there. Yeah, maybe he maybe he turned eight, something like that. I had played him a few episodes of the show, maybe even a dozen episodes of the show. He just certainly knew the characters and everything. I did not play him Star Trek The Motion Picture. I played him Wrath of Khan. And I told him, this is a good movie. Everybody likes this movie. And we're watching it. And, and I could tell he was into it. He was saying certain things. He was really, he was into it and he was enjoying it. And then it looks like Spock's about to die and he's in disbelief. It's like, Spock, they're not going to, he's, they're not going to kill. He, he, to the point, he's already, he understands like the economic, like we watch a movie and he's like, did it make money? And like, yeah. Great, I liked it. I want to see the sequels. Basically, is what happens, right? He understands the economic side of it and all that kind of stuff. So he's like, "They're not going to kill Spock. Spock's not going to die. They're not going to kill Spock." So I didn't say anything. And this, by the end of the scene, Spock's dead. He sits back in his seat and he says very quietly, "This is the worst Star Trek movie ever." <laughs> yeah, pretty good. <laughs> all right, let's do. Six Degrees for Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Steve, are you going first or second? I'll go first. Paul Winfield plays Captain Tyrell in Next Gen's fifth season. He played the captain that speaks in metaphors in the episode Darmok. Finish this phrase. Picard and blank at El Adrel. Hmm. Uh, Dathan? Yes, sir. Adam? 
Merritt Butrick plays David Marcus. He would later play Tijan in the Next Gen episode, Symbiosis. What season was that? Oh, season two? No. Uh, Steve, you got a guess? Uh, one. Yes, it was season one. Yeah, um, Gene Roddenberry did not write a sexed-up novelization of this movie, so I just had to default to the boring Six Degrees questions. Well, I think that's a opening for one of us to write it then. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> oh, real quick, I, um, I, I want to ask it. So, um, Kirstie Alley, looking back on it now, I know she took a lot of flag for not playing a good Vulcan, but I mean, how do you feel the same way or different or not? I don't I'm okay with her tearing up when he dies, just just to show the ex- incredible power of the death of Spock that it would that it could bring a Vulcan to tear up. And is she is she basically and she's the, young? Is she basically the second person to really kind of play a main Vulcan character? Oh, I guess besides Sarek. And you know, you got to think that was probably a Meyer. You know, she didn't probably didn't tear up on her own. That's probably a director thing. Tear up, <laughs> Steve. Yeah, I, I thought I thought it was fine. I mean, it, it now I, I I have all that backstory of knowing that they the notion maybe that she was part Romulan and all these kind of speculation and that they didn't establish and stuff in there. So, I mean, I kind of just yeah, I kind of just dismissed it as she's either she's a really young Vulcan, yeah, something like that, yeah. And yeah, and you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. You know, we know more. You know, young Vulcans are kind of volatile anyway, so it kind of makes a little more sense today than they back then. I think she's good. I mean, I think she. I remember when at that time that I saw Harv Bennett and somebody, somebody asked him about Robin Curtis, uh, you know, who takes over the role in Star Trek Three, and he immediately said, "Look, Robin is great, but she doesn't." That what Kirsty had, even if Kirsty had been a bad actress, <laughs> I mean, it's irrelevant. Kirsty Alley has that star quality, screen presence. Yeah, she has that. She has it in, in every shot. Yeah. Um, and I definitely see that. You know, that she has she has uh, a power when she's on screen that that Robin Curtis doesn't. All right. Well, we'll talk more about that in two weeks when we come back to discuss Star Trek Three. So, thank you. I hope that we weren't too all over the map this time. It's kind of hard to talk about Star Trek 2 to, to say something new, but I feel like we we certainly talked about what we can enjoy and love about it. Crazy to think the movie's almost 40 years old. But. <laughs> yeah. uh, so we're going to be back in two weeks to talk, talk Star Trek 3. Until then, you can follow us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash trekcompanion. Our Twitter handle is at trekcompanion. You can send us an email, trekcompanion at gmail.com. Uh, like us on iTunes. Give us five stars as a rating that's how people find us we'd really appreciate that on the june 22nd episode of the penske podcast the three of us were guests and we talked about uh, our 10-year journey to watch all of the existing star trek episodes the ones that existed when we started our show uh if you want to hear us so talk like behind the scenes podcasty stuff you might check that out so thanks again for spending an hour with us and see you in two weeks take it easy bye guys see ya
fun. I passed it.